after I had my second kid, I was just finding myself really starved for experiences that were very immersive for my kids in which they would learn about their heritage in a very organic way. And New York City has all these beautiful museums that have exhibits, like the Met has the biggest permanent exhibit on South Asia. So I was taking my kids to all these places, but you know they had to talk in their hushed tones. They couldn't touch anything. They, if the docent was explaining something, the docent was not talking in a way or in a language that the kids would understand. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Anu Segal. Anu is a culture educator that grew up in India as the daughter of a Hindu army man and a Muslim gynecologist. She moved to the United States over 20 years ago to complete her education and to begin working as a brand manager for major companies, including Colgate and Mattel. In those roles, Anu sharpened her entrepreneurial tendencies, something she's had since childhood, to then go and launch the Culture Tree. Since 2015, she's spearheaded this organization, which works with museums, schools, and libraries to promote South Asian literacy, in addition to running language classes for children. Past clients of the Culture Tree include the Met, the Children's Museum of Manhattan, and in 2021, they hosted the Colors of India event, the first South Asian event in NYC's Hudson Yards. We talked about the diversity that Anu saw within India, both living in a multicultural household and as a so-called army brat. She reflected on coming to America and what she did to fit in versus today running a business that highlights her South Asian heritage. Lastly, we talk about how the culture tree has affected how Anu parents her two boys, and we chat about how Anu sees her own role in taking care of her mother today. Without further ado, Anu Segal, welcome to Brown People We Know. Mona, your sister, is writing a series of children's books that are inspired by your childhood. So I wanted to kind of start there. I know that you were born in Delhi and your father was in the army. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, it was amazing. Although, you know, my mother, she she was a gynecologist, a doctor, and she basically rooted herself in a cantonment. And that that became our base because she couldn't move with my father. But every summer we used to, for the entire summer break, there are no, at least in those days, there were no camps in India, summer camps or sleepaway camps. So we used to spend the entire summer with our father wherever he was posted. And it was an amazing experience. And I think that was the first time I started discovering the beauty in India and the subcultures that exist in different states in India, the diversity and the flora and fauna and, you know, everything. So I would say it was an amazing experience growing up as it's called the army brat. I I took in everything I could. There were a lot of perks associated with being an army child, you know, access to uh, sports, access to swimming pools, you know, all the fancy clubs. 
And that actually made me a very well-rounded child. Growing up, I was always a swimmer. I still swim. And I used to compete in um, various levels of competitions as a swimmer. So I think I, I benefited completely out of being an army child. And then there was also, you know, seeing my father, like he was very much uh, a traditional army guy. He, even if he had a day off, he used to change his clothes in a very mechanical way and take a lot of pride in having shiny shoes and, you know, being prim and proper. So, you know, I, I really learned from that experience as well. But it was a beautiful childhood. All the cantonments where typically army army people are located are beautiful. They're lush, they're green. And it's, it's again, a subculture of its own. The army families, they associate it with each other in a different way. So it was a beautiful, I would say, growing up experience. A lot of times when we hear about kids in India, especially in the past, I would think, I would think of those academic camps or like, you know, the, the prep schools for exams and just very intense academic environment. But it sounds like maybe your life was a little less academically focused and you were more w- well-rounded, as you said, or do you think there was still a heavy emphasis on academics? So, so there was emphasis because I come from a family with a doctor. <laughs> so I, I, I'm the youngest of the three sisters and my two sisters, they're identical twins. So, you know, being the older siblings, um, they definitely were very academic throughout. And I was more of a rebel child doing my own, like whatever I wanted to do. And it it really suited my, uh, you know, personality as well. I was always on the more creative entrepreneurial side. I used to have my own little garden and I used to grow my own vegetables. This is I, I, like I was very little, like five or six years old. And um, I used to make my own vegetable stall and sell vegetables to actual people. So I was more well-rounded, as it's called in America, but my sisters were very academic. My oldest sister is a doctor, so she was preordained to follow uh, what my mom did, and I, I don't think she had any option. And her identical twin actually studied for the medical school, which is a big deal in India, and it's very competitive. But once she got accepted by the medical school, which is a big deal, she decided to major in literature. So she finally broke out of the mold. (laughs) But I would say, you know, our family was an unusual family for India, for a small town in those days, because also my, my father is Hindu, my mother is Muslim. So it's basically coming together of those religions. Uh, In those days, in my parents' days, they had a love marriage. You know, so all those things in in 60s in India uh, and and an interreligious marriage. So they were already pushing boundaries and breaking so many barriers in their own way. And then, of course, my mother was, you know, she has had such a big influence on us and specifically me, because she she was a, a pioneering woman in a small town in India. She was a first gynecologist and she was very heavily working with, you know, uh, people who couldn't afford medical care, basic medical care. And also uh, for her literacy about, you know, sexual literacy or just how things work 
she used to have a, a whole educational session for a newlywed couple, which, you know, people in India in those days didn't do it. So she was, she was herself a really big influence for, I think, all three of us and actually for our friends also. So I would say, yeah, you know, it was an unusual setting in which I grew up, but I took in everything, every aspect of it, and I'm now regurgitating it, like in my own way, being a cultural educator. But I, you know, the whole mold of the Indian child, I was not fitting into it uh, because of my personality, I would say. It's so funny to hear about the sexual literacy thing, because I think parents in America today, Indian parents in America, I should say at least, are still not doing that. So. Oh my God. You know, my my son who is now in middle school, so they have sexual literacy and there are all these amazing speakers. So he had a session and then they did a condensed version of that for the parents. So the parents knew what was going on. And I was blown away. I was like, even if I had that in my 20s, there's so much I could have learned. <laughs> but exactly, it's it's very different. But I think in India, they are changing. I mean, the whole culture and the societal norms are changing too. But it is such a big break, such a big departure from the way our society works in India or in South Asia. So kind of coming back to the fact that you were raised in an interfaith household, father was Hindu, mother was Muslim. On this podcast, we talk about how so many of us have grown up with dual identities. But I'm wondering, as you were growing up, did you have any sort of a corresponding, like, I don't want to call it like an identity crisis, but like an identity adventure where you were kind of figuring out religion or what community you fit into, given that you're raised between those two cultures? Yeah, so not related. So this is very strange, but it was not the whole identity crisis was not really related to the religion because from religious aspect, my parents really coexisted very well because they were both liberals in their own ways. And for my mother, religion was not even a big factor. She always said, humanity is my religion. So, you know, they were both quite, uh, otherwise they wouldn't have been married or they wouldn't have fallen in love. But I think the identity crisis for me was more because of the treatment of women. And like here in my own household, I have this woman, my mother, who is such a strong personality and such a giving person and such a role model, like from various angles and from various aspects. And then I'm seeing outside the treatment of women so that was very hard for me to understand, to fit into, to follow. And that was what I was pushing boundaries against. And as, as I mentioned earlier, I was a rebel from the very beginning. And, you know, that, that was a mold that I couldn't really, I was not satisfied following it or being in it. And it, it was a struggle, I have to say, in a small North Indian UP town where there is objectification of women where like there was this guy he was talking to me he was not even making an eye contact and that was much harder for me to comprehend and it kept getting worse as I was growing older because 
when I was a child, I was like, okay, it's strange. But then, you know, it, it became a frustration point for me and for my sisters also. And we, we started understanding the frustrations that my mother was witnessing in her workforce, in her, you know, hospitals that she used to go to. She used to work in a, com- in a, in a company also, and she used to do all this volunteer work in Indian villages. So then we started understanding as we were teenagers and older what she was, you know, faced with. And that was much more, much harder for us to wrap our heads around. I think that was one of the key reasons I moved to the U.S., I have to say. You know, it was, yes, higher education, but then I wanted my voice to be heard and I wanted to be free to express what I wanted in my own way. And I think that was a big catalyst for me. I heard you talk earlier about how you would garden and you started this veggie stall. I'm hearing you talk now about this kind of experience as a woman. Did all of that drive you straight to the U.S.? Did you consider going to other places? And I'm also curious about your sisters. Did they kind of have a similar transition over to the U.S. because of their experiences there? Yeah, yeah. So very similar experiences. So I, uh, we didn't consider any other countries. We did consider the U.S. because our uncle was here. So we had a quasi base. I moved with uh, with my other sister who was doing literature. So the two of us migrated together. And the of course, the identical twin had to follow in a few years. She couldn't be away from her, her twin. But, you know, it was basically for me and my middle sister, I call her the middle sister, although she was a twin. It, it was very similar experiences. We were just, you know, I was paranoid about like you can be in school and college and still you are in a bubble but once you're in the workforce all the guards are down and you know I was terrified I have to say just um, hearing stories thinking about what our friends were going through or our relatives or families were, were going through so I think it was one of the key reasons for both of us and and of course the type of education you get in America, you know, in those days, like that was the epitome. So we were like, oh, yeah, we have to. That's our next step. And our parents were very supportive. Um, They didn't think that we will stay. They thought we'll like get our degrees and come back. But we we stayed. (laughs) So many of us, because we're kind of disconnected from a larger Indian community, we latch on to Indian identity through language or religion, you kind of had this different experience, especially having come from there. So how would you describe what it means to be Indian from the perspective of someone that, you know, moved from India to the U.S. as an adult? Yeah, so such a such an interesting question. I think what it means to be Indian has slightly evolved. When I had just moved from India I was trying to really just fit in and, you know, be the normal, which meant, you know, adapting my accent a little bit so that people at least understood or a credit card company that was calling me didn't just hang up or changing, you know, my full name is Anuradha or just going with just Anu. So, yeah, so that was at that time, it was basically fitting in and uh, the Indianness 
was not as evident, although it was visible uh, in the way I look. But I think being Indian for me has now, since I've had children, has really changed. And even if you take away the cultural educator side of me, I would say I bring in my Indianness and I bring in my experiences growing up in India and all the lovely elements of India when I'm talking to people. So for me, being Indian is a lot of things. It's my childhood, my memories of eating the delicious food, going to the mango orchards, going to the temples, going to the mosques. It's that like upbringing for me, which is, you know, very rich and very beautiful. You know, I wish I could get my two boys to experience every aspect of that. And I am trying, you know, like every day I am telling them stories. And now I tell even the kids in our programs the stories, uh, the beautiful stories and the beautiful cultural heritage that they have. But being Indian is, you know, it's beautiful, it's colorful, it's, it's so historic, it's so diverse and secular. And that, that is India. And that is the India that people don't know about. You know, people don't think they, they put all of us Indians in one mold and we are not in one mold. We, we couldn't be different from each other. Like the number of religions and uh, the number of languages that exist in India. So, so yeah, being India, being Indian is just being so different, but then having a very strong heritage and a very strong sense of what all the things that in India are, all the religions. So it's basically coexisting of all that. So I can see your passion now when you're speaking about India and your childhood and telling people about it. So when you first came here and you had to kind of modify your name to Anu so people could say it when you had to work on your accent, was that a frustrating experience for you? Or did you kind of hold the mindset that this is just the price of being in America and getting access to that better education, those types of things? Yeah, no, I, the latter, definitely. Like I basically said, okay, this is a problem and how do we solve it? Without me sounding like an American, because I could do that, but do I want to do that? So, you know, having it within certain parameters, but when I came to the U.S., I was very open-minded. And, you know, I said, OK, in the classroom, if people are not, about, not, not able to understand what I'm saying, that is a problem. So let's modify it. So I, I came with a very open mind. And I, I feel, you know, in general, I, I come to situations, events or whatever with an open mind and flexibility. And, uh, you know, that's how entrepreneurs roll. And that's how I think successful people roll. Like I, I had hosted a literary festival a couple of years ago, and it was hosted in NYU's um, bilingual program building. And the, the professor who, she basically runs the whole bilingual program, and she was the host. And we had like some confetti that was um, dropped by some performers and nobody was picking it up. And she she went and she just swept it. Like, that's how you roll. You roll with the situation, have pride in whatever you're doing. And that's what I was trying to do, you know, just go with the flow. If there's a problem, let's have a solution. 
within parameters and go with the flow. <laughs> yeah, just do what needs to get done. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I did have a really wonderful experience in the U.S., uh, like as an undergrad. Like I just had one year of undergrad in the U.S. and it was really beautiful. You know, people were welcoming and, you know, it was a very different experience and I loved it all up. It was wonderful. So you mentioned that you came here primarily for your higher education. You got your MBA at Yale. What was your motivation at that time? Because you, this was the start of a, a decade-long marketing career. I'm wondering, was that intentional? Did you come here to explore careers? Did you come here to go into marketing? Like, What was going through your head during that time? In India, I had my undergrad in economics, and I wanted to do a PhD in economics. That was my mindset when I came to the U.S. So in India, the the undergrad system is three years. So you always have to do one more year in the U.S. to get the right number of credits. So that's what I did right after coming here. And as I talked to my economics professors and, you know, they're like, OK, you if you want to do your Ph.D., you really have to be, you know, set on it because it's a long journey. And I actually worked in finance right after finishing my undergrad. And that was basically, again, I was trying to figure out, okay, do I want to do this PhD and commit to it? And while I was doing my finance degree, I was actually working on very quantitative models for uh, a couple of rating agencies. That's when I was like, okay, this is just not the route. The creative juices in me were like flowing out. And I was living in in New York City at the time. I was going to these museums. And, you know, I was was just, I knew I was doing the wrong thing at that point. And I'm so glad that I spent a couple of years to really figure out uh, what was the right field for me. And uh, that's when I decided to get my MBA in marketing and brand management from Yale and then I started working in brand management and marketing. And as you know, you know, a brand manager is almost like running a small business because you are working on different aspects of the brand and, you know, you're responsible for the returns, the PL, the share. So that's the first experience I had on, um, you know, the whole entrepreneurial aspect in a very systematic way. And of course, going to a business school you know, gave me all the buzzwords, of course, but then also the right training that I needed to really shift gears. And I thoroughly enjoyed being in business school. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the marketing and brand management aspect. And if people ask me, you know, in in a party, what do you do? I I tell them, you know, I, I am marketer by, like my heart is there. And I just feel it's very hard to remove it from my my professional uh, career. It's interesting because I think when people think about marketing traditionally, they're thinking about creative copy, designing sets for photography, that type of stuff. It's all just the creative side, right? But it, it seems like in that role, because you worked at big companies like Mattel and Colgate, it seems like you were engaging both that creative aspect, but also some of what we're seeing today, which is that Marketing is really, really analytics-based and and very heavy in quant in some ways. And that was the aspect because I worked at big companies, which like the projects that are in place are there for 
three, four years, and then you finally see the product in the marketplace if it has gone through and passed all the rigorous research studies and focus groups because it, it they really test it out to the maximum extent. And, and Colgate is considered a very traditional company in that aspect. Uh, yeah, marketing is not just creative. It's like working with the ops, the supply chain, the researchers, the R&D, like it's everything, the lawyers, because everything goes into a decision and a product launch and then finally getting it to the consumers and to the marketplace, which is the fun part. So up until that point, your career seems pretty linear. I know that you spent seven years, I think, at Colgate. And often with those positions, they kind of, there's a ladder laid out, right? Because it's a corporation, you know, this is going to be my next role. This is going to be my next role. I'm curious if you felt fulfilled during that time period. And the reason I ask you that question is because with the pandemic and just COVID in general, a lot of people seem to have been reevaluating their choices and what's important to them. And I've seen so many people leave the corporate world, right, when they've had this moment to pause. So, again, just curious during that time period, if you felt fulfilled, if you felt challenged. The people around me were brilliant. They were from different backgrounds and different schools, business schools. Like, they were smart people. So, you know, even a coffee break with one of them was extremely fulfilling. And all of us had jo joined as brand managers or associate brand managers. And we, had, we were full of energy and ideas and, you know, all that. So it was very fulfilling. I had amazing mentors. And actually, my boss, my first boss at Colgate, I'm going for her milestone birthday party this weekend. So, you know, it's lifelong relationships that I've built. And People who even left Colgate, they, they are very successful. Some are CEOs, some are CMOs, all that. So it was very fulfilling. I did feel quite challenged. It was extremely challenging, you know, working at an organization which has so many opportunities, firstly, to take your brand to the next level and also to basically showcase your leadership skills, team, teamwork, like all, the, all those things. So it was really, I, I enjoyed working at Colgate and at Mattel. I enjoyed the work a lot. I have to say it was very fast-paced. It was very demanding, but it was also very rewarding. The only thing that I, I would say didn't enjoy was, you know, sitting in your cubicle or in your office nine to six, or in that, that case, it's never nine to six. It used to be eight to eight. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm an outdoorsy person. I cannot sit still in a house, you know, in a, I'll go out like three or four times. So that aspect I didn't enjoy as much. I wanted to go run or bike. And then this is pre-pandemic, so very little flexibility to work from home. But after I had my second kid, not having the flexibility, even one day a week became an issue for me, just because it was just too much happening and too many demands. And it can be very demanding that, you know, once you have your kids, both the parents in, you know, regular corporate jobs, it's not sustainable. And I know corporations and companies are moving towards more flexible, more flexibility 
But that was one of the things that really made me think, okay, there has to be something else. And I'm, I'm so glad it made me think because that le- basically led to what I'm doing now. So it seems like a lot of people these days, they want to go out and start something when they're young, right? There's this huge push for entrepreneurship. It's kind of in fashion right now. Since you made that transition from the corporate world to the entrepreneurial world, I'm curious what you would suggest to someone younger that wanted to start something like, would you push them to go work in a corporation for a while? Because like you said, your, your project management, your brand management work was basically small business, right? So would you push them to do that? Or would you say, you know, go ahead and start early? I would say, go ahead, and start early. You will learn all the things when you are launching a business. Maybe it is a failure for the first few years. That's fine. It's the, but you know, getting into the field that you want to be in gives you such a big advantage, and you know the connections. It's just amazing. Like I have rebuilt my connections since I started my business, and if I had started this business in my twenties, I would have had you know fifteen twenty years advantage. And mind you, Suraj, if I was not an immigrant, if I hadn't migrated to the U.S. and I didn't have that immigrant mentality when, you know, you are like, OK, I have no money. I'm not going to borrow from my father who's or my mother who, are, who was earning in rupees and I'm not going to burden them with that. So if I didn't have that, I would have been an entrepreneur because I just I just had it from my childhood. Like now I can see it so clearly. Like I look back to my into my childhood, I'm like, that is what I was destined to do. So I, I would say right at start, start it right away and just make the right connection. Keep going. It's not easy. Every night I have to like really think through the priorities. And so it's nonstop being an entrepreneur, but it is also very rewarding to basically come up with an idea, execute it and see the results whatever those results are. But um, I would say start it right away. It's also funny that you mentioned being an immigrant because in my eyes, what you did was you came to this country, which is kind of a very unstable and culture shock transition. You found stability in a corporate route. And then I'm wondering for the next step as you transitioned back to entrepreneurship, did being an immigrant make it easier or harder? Because on one hand, you've already made this transition into instability once, but on the other hand, you're now settled. It's like, ah, do I really want to go back to that? Yeah, no, that's that's such an uh, interesting question. I think coming to US was definitely, yeah, there is instability, but I think people who are coming here are resilient to a certain extent. So so I think that resilience and that struggle definitely makes you stronger and it definitely made me stronger. And, you know, going into the corporate world, like I worked in New York City, I knew no one, like no one. So, it, you know, it's basically you are paving your own path and then deciding that, no, you know, I'm going to go to business school and... I have to say, whenever I was at schools, uh, colleges or schools, it it was much easier because, you know, there's just so many people from different backgrounds. So I I think 
you know, both were difficult, I would say, in that particular time period for me. Understanding the corporate culture is also very hard for a person who was coming from India. And I was not even watching as many movies. There was no YouTube. and the, You know, so it was very different. But I, I think there has to be that resilience that's in your spirit that makes you, like, you just keep going. So you kind of transition out. And for a few years, you were this cultural educator. You worked with the Met, with the Rubin Museum of Art, with the New York Public Library. And then in 2015, you start this thing that we've been mentioning a couple of times, the culture tree. And it seems to have a lot of success. I know you just had your Color for India event, which was the first Indian event at the Hudson Yards, Indian subcontinent event at the Hudson Yards, which is NYC's newest kind of area monument, <laughs> whatever Cultural you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> more buzzwords, right? Yeah, <laughs> more buzzwords. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you describe the culture tree and like, w- what is it? So the Culture Tree is an organization that does cultural literacy that is focused on South Asia and Indian subcontinent. And we do language classes and also cultural events. And, you know, language classes is more targeted towards South Asians. And the cultural events are anyone and everyone. And the mission is to really bring that cultural literacy and awareness about South Asian countries and South Asian culture. Beyond what people just know, like South Asia to be, you know, curries and and henna and, you know, really going beyond that. And all the programs that or literacy that we do is, it has an educational aspect, educational angle. So we layer it on. So if we are hosting, say, even a Bollywood dance workshop, we'll start by telling everyone about the roots of that dance form. So the educational element is very critical to us. And as you mentioned, you know, we work with schools, we work with museums, libraries, and now we have started working with quite a few venues in the New York area. And we are now, through the pandemic, we have also started doing virtual events all over the U.S., when the culture tree was formed, you had already been doing this work for a while, kind of in a freelance fashion, right? So when you formalized and formally created this entity, was it because you were kind of driven by this culture, like this mission to add culture to the U.S. or bring South Asian culture to the U.S.? Or was it more like at that time you were looking for an entrepreneurial venture and you were already doing this work and this was a way for you to scale and grow a business? So when I left my corporate job, I was actually working on a food idea, food concept. And it was, you know, health, uh, healthy food from South Asia. So there was some commonality, but that is what I spent two years doing, just developing the concept, the business plan and everything. And this really was the culture tree idea. It happened on its own. You know, it surprised me when it happened because... After I became a mother of two, the first one, it was fine. After I had my second kid, I was just finding myself really starved for experiences that were very immersive for my kids in which they would learn about their heritage in a very organic way. And New York City has 
all these beautiful museums that have exhibits, like the Met has the biggest permanent exhibit on South Asia. So I was taking my kids to all these places, but, you know, they had to talk in their hushed tones. They couldn't touch anything. They, if the docent was explaining something, the docent was not talking in a way or in a language that the kids would understand. And as I was exposing my kids to these, you know, opportunities, I, I just realized there is, there is a real need for an institution, an organization that really focuses on that. And the other aspect was wherever I saw Indian culture or South Asian culture, like events or programs, it was the same things that kept happening. And I was like, no, it's much more than this. And that was really the moment when um, I realized that someone has to do this and might as well it it be me. And, you know, definitely coming back to buzzwords, there was a white space. There was a need and there was a definite need because I experienced it with my kids for three, four, five years. And then I started hearing everyone else say that, you know, there is a need. There was also a need for language, basically classes. And, you know, I I started with my older one. He started doing some Hindi classes. But, you know, the language education that is focused on South Asia was happening in a very fragmented way. There were people teaching from their houses. There was organizations coming in and going out and it was kind of loosey-goosey so I was like okay there's definitely I should put all my energy into it and it just once I started it it just took a life of its own it kept growing and you know even now I just feel sky's the limit it's so funny because the thing that comes to mind for me might almost seem silly but you know, if I go to an Indian restaurant, for example, most Indian restaurants, they only have North Indian food, right? The typical paneer dishes, that type of thing. But at home, I would always eat pulihara, which is like a tamarind rice, right? From South India. And so that was like an extra layer of immersion for me that I had just being from an Indian American family. But I remember actually going to India and we were visiting like my uncle's farm and he had a tamarind tree And so I was able to kind of like pick it off there, taste it raw. And it was just like a different layer of that. You know, this thing I'd been eating my whole life, I experienced it in a very different way. So I love the concept of like an immersive experience because, yeah, even those of us that consider ourselves like Indian American, it's easy for us to see our American heritage and feel the different layers of it. But it's just hard because India is geographically so far away. So Anu, the other question I have for you is that So many of my guests have expressed this kind of distancing from Indian culture that they faced early on. And even you had mentioned, again, not to bring it up too often, but the example of shortening your name to make it more American or at least easy to pronounce for Americans and fitting in. Right. So we basically have these stories of people rejecting their Indian heritage or their South Asian heritage to blend in. But you kind of did the exact opposite where you're like, oh, I'm going to start this. Indian food business, I'm going to start this entire business where I'm not only embracing, but actually going out and spreading South Asian culture. I guess, was there a moment for you where you kind of switched from the mindset of I need to blend in to I need to 
be more vocal about this? And was that uncomfortable in the beginning? Because now there's like a bunch of Americans that are aware you're doing this thing. Right, right, right. Again, very, very insightful question, Suraj. Yeah, absolutely. When I moved to the U.S., my goal was to blend in. And then when I I was comfortable and, you know, I blended in well and I had like all my friends, um, diverse friends, Americans, non-Americans, Indians, that was the time when I was like, okay, now let me show you what I've got. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went with that route because that was the right thing for me at that moment in my life. And at this point in my life, I think the number one mission or goal I have is that my kids embrace their Indianness, their duality. They love being Indian Americans and not just my, my personal kids, but my kids in my program and really building that sense of pride and also giving them the right tools, like making them knowledgeable about various aspects of India or whichever heritage culture they come from, because knowledge is power. And, you know, so, so I would say, yes, it has shifted, but I cannot, I cannot even explain how much I feel there is a need. And, and this, in this day and age also, like since last year, America has transformed, the world has transformed. And I think there is even the need for an organization like the Culture Trees even more important. So I am going with the flow, but the intensity is definitely at its peak right now. You know, I, when, I, when I went to a story time at some museum, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> and in that, they were telling the story of Diwali, one of the stories of Diwali. And it was just completely butchered. The names were butchered. The storyline was butchered. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. And I was like, okay, there has to be someone from that culture telling that story. And it is very important. Like, you really cannot do justice. And there is just so much talent that exists. You know, there are, I've met some wonderful artists. I've met musicians. And, and they're all at our, like, they can, they can create programs. And now with everything virtual, it's even more, like, it's even easier to work with, you know, all these amazing people. Like, I did a program at Asia Society last year. Uh, it was called Eid Around the World. And it had various things that we did. And we did a calligraphy session, which was taught by a master calligrapher from Iran. I mean, it couldn't get better. And I, I was literally sitting with my jaw dropped, like listening to this guy. So I, I would say, yes, I, I have changed. But I think this is, this is the moment. I love the idea that you brought up that having this Diwali show, this Diwali storytelling is important, but it's also important for people from the culture to be telling that story because we just did a few episodes on media representation. The same thing came up where there needs to be TV writers that are of South Asian descent writing South Asian characters. And I know when I, when I was learning about the culture tree, one of the things, it sounds small, but one of the things that was most exciting to me was to see the puppets because like the puppet of Krishna 
it looked how I might imagine it. And it wasn't some sort of, oh, we have a couple puppets that are white, a couple puppets that are black. Like, which one are we going to use to play this character? Was that a custom thing that you had made for the event? Yeah. So I, um, so I, like, unfortunately, I never learned any dance form or learned any musical instrument growing up. And, and I keep telling my kids that, that, you know, just FYI, that's a regret I have. So, you know, for, for my company, I really wanted to create something. And puppeteering is an art form in almost all the countries, like in India, in China. I mean, it's, it's a centuries-old art form. And uh, there are such beautiful stories from all different parts of the world. In America, actually, puppeteering is more for children. So that, that's a difference, and that's a very big difference. So, like, I, I really wanted all these stories to come through in a different way, in, a, in, you know, almost like a performance-like aspect. You know, I started thinking of all the stories that I would want to tell everyone in America about, and not just, again, I say everyone, because where I grew up, puppet shows are not just for kids. They are an art form. They're, like, almost knowing a totally different dance form. So that was, I, I kept thinking there has to be something different. And I was shocked to see there are no puppet shows that exist from the Indian subcontinent, whether it is any country in, in South Asia. And that was the time when I said, okay, let me explore. And I was very fortunate to bump into, or you know, someone contacted me and she was a puppeteer in India. And I basically told her that, you know, these are the ideas I have. Can we do it? Can we execute it? It is extremely challenging. It's like almost like having a Broadway play where you write the script or you get the script written, you develop the puppets, then you need the actors who memorize the lines and, you know, all that. Like it is a production. And I think people don't realize how much work goes into a simple puppet show. But I was completely, you know, motivated. And the puppet show that we created was actually the scripts have all been written by my sister, who's a children's book uh, writer. And again, she brought in the elements of us growing up in India and, you know, going to Ramlila, which happens right for Diwali. And it's it is a production. It is almost like a, a show that is you go for it every night for a few days. So, so we really brought in those elements, but then we made it appropriate for the American audience. And, you know, we made sure there was, there was a balance, that it was relatable. We brought in all the iconic music. So in our puppet show, we have all the music and the songs you know uh, Ramlila with. Uh, we also, the, the puppet show at Hudson Yards is called Colors of Krishna's Love. And that's one of the stories of Holi, but we have, we have added a twist to it because in that story, we talk about colorism that existed in India in those days. So we have adapted it because I think just having a story, a folktale and performed here doesn't make any sense. So yeah, no, my puppet shows are my babies and... I have to say they are very demanding babies, <laughs> but I just see uh, the reaction and I see that the not just the kids, 
But then also, there are so many doors, I have to say, uh, Suraj, that have opened because of the puppet shows. So I, I definitely think that's the way to kind of teach children about culture, nuances, and even about whatever moral story we want to convey to them. I have one, two other puppet shows. One is Eidka, which is, you know, a story about Eid that was written in the 1940s by Munshi Premchand, who is a very well-known author and poet in India. And it has been rewritten by my son, who was 10 years old, and we have made it into a puppet show. And that also goes with the whole thinking about um, the culture tree. We want to represent the diversity in South Asia, Hindu festivals, Muslim festivals. I mean, I want to keep growing it. And then the last one that we have developed is called uh, The Climate Warriors. And it is the stories of three children from all over the world. But there is one story from India. And it's actually, the story is from real, real things that happened from the Chipko movement, which is the tree hugging movement. So basically, uh, that is my latest puppet show in which, um, you know, three kids are leading environmental efforts in their own way and making a change. And we are talking about three different environmental issues, uh, deforestation, plastic waste, water pollution. And, you know, that that definitely is going to, I think it can have a lot of uh, success. I think if people could see my face, they would be able to tell that I'm a total child at heart <laughs> because yeah. I'm so excited about these public shows. Yeah, no, everybody gets excited, I have to say. You touched on a point that I was a bit curious about, which is when we think about Hassan Minaj, one of the things that is so exciting for so many of us in the diaspora is that as he makes jokes that are aimed at the brown audience, he doesn't kind of stop to explain them, right? He just keeps moving. So when you throw an event like Colors of India or an event like these puppet shows, I'm wondering what, how, what your thought process is around the modifications that you need to make. Because on one hand, you're, again, as you said, keeping it relatable to the South Asian audience. On the other hand, you have an audience where you're trying to expose them to South Asian culture, possibly for the first time. And even among those of us that are in the diaspora, we have varying degrees of exposure to South Asian culture beforehand. So how do you kind of hit both those audiences at once? Yeah, no, it is a delicate balance. I have to say we do do a setup before our puppet shows. It's primarily to people who don't know those stories so that it just doesn't come out of nowhere. I think it is an important thing for an educator or a performer to set it up in the right way. But then once the show starts, it is the appropriate or the right accent. We use uh, our native language. We use, I mean, in, in this case, it's Hindi. In case of Eidka, it'll be uh, Urdu. We are going to use those words and people have to get it from the context because that's how we get it from <laughs> other cultures. From the context. And I love the analogy to Hassan Minaj. I love him because, and, and you know, my, my kids who are not that old, 12 and 10, they are a big fan of Hassan Minaj because he just, he owns it and he doesn't apologize and he doesn't stop and you just have to get it from the context. So once the show starts, it's a complete emotion. Whether it's music, whether it is the dance, 
the movement, whether it is the script, whether it is our accent, you will get it the way we want to give it to you. And basically, it depends on you or to the audience what they want to garner from it. And I think that's when the normalization comes. That, you know, we we have adapted it enough, but if you want a real experience, this is the real experience. So I think it is a very delicate balance. And I think all performers have to really be very careful about that balance and not give in too much. I just feel if you give in too much, then you've already, you know, made it into a different animal. I know you've mentioned a couple of times that you're the mother of two boys. You're also running this business where you interact with many kids. How has creating and building and running the culture tree changed the way that you parent? Or we can even go in the reverse direction where how has parenting those kids kind of changed the way that you work on the culture tree? Right, right, right. So I I feel... I mean, my kids get a lot of cultural, like they're my guinea pigs. So as I mentioned, I have two boys, 12 and uh, 9, 10. They're my little guinea pigs. Like if I come up with a concept, with an idea, I first share it with them. And then they either give me a thumbs down or thumbs up. And, you know, they have been learning the language. They've been learning Hindi language from the very beginning uh, or the very inception of the culture tree. That's my fringe benefit. So they they have not been separated from the culture tree, I feel. And they will never be separated. So my older one has become very proud about his heritage. And he just wants to know more and more and more. And he cannot get enough. We were in a, a Hindi class and uh, the teacher asked all the kids, and I was just auditing it, the teachers asked the kid, um, where do you want to go in Hindi? So it was basically, you know, the whole uh, traveling uh, lesson plan. And my son said, I want to go to India in Hindi. And that was the point when I said, okay, this is done. Like my job is done. This child is so curious and so happy in his duality. And he's the one who wrote the, uh, the uh, reinterpretation of Eidgah. So, and and that's what I see in, you know, the children that are a part of our program and have been with us. Some kids have been with us for the past five, six years. And, you know, the pride and the language and the, the whole family getting involved is just so rewarding. I cannot even tell you. Like, we just ended um, camp. We did a camp on the Gita, which is taught by an award-winning author, Rupa Pai from Bangalore and when children were reflecting on the on what the main story of Gita is and they everyone had a different takeaway and it's you know all about mindfulness mindfulness was born in India 3000 years ago or 4500 so so basically you know there is no separation anymore i would say in my household like if i even am putting together a crop my kids are going to help they they just have to. So there is a lot of, you know, movement within my household and within with my business. And, you know, I'm very happy to have that. I enjoy it. I want to keep thinking of other ways in which we can spread the culture. And, you know, I think kids are the best, I would say, 
like they're just so frank they'll give you feedback and they they'll interact and you know i also try to besides my programs i also try to teach at least one language class a week and that's just like i really believe a chef has to taste their own food and you know time is an issue for me because i just don't have enough time but i make it a point that i do that because i am interacting with the kids and i'm really hearing what they have to say and it really makes me a better educator whether it is language education whether it is a parent whether it is you know a cultural ambassador so i think there are so many layers of learning to be done when you interact with them the other parenting question i have for you is that when i went through college it was i wasn't a first generation college student but in some ways i felt like the experience was very similar because my parents had no idea about extracurriculars to them college was go get your degree you get placed that type of thing right so i always tell people like i'm a first generation american college student because there is a very different experience there versus being second gen american college student or just being from an american family going to college here earlier you alluded to this as well when you said you had to learn corporate culture and so do you feel like you've had to adapt your parenting as someone that immigrated here versus someone that grew up here? Yes, yes, yes. Oh my goodness. Every day. Simple things like I'm I I I'm always telling my kids, "Why why are you touching that book with your foot?" Why you know like things like that all the time. Because I said so, you know, that's not the American way. You have to explain yourself. So no I I definitely have adapted my parenting skills as compared to the way it was when I grew up and I also feel here in America we are more in the face of our kids like my mom was seeing patients all the time like there was only a few times when we used to meet with her because she was just always busy my dad was posted so there were very few interaction points whereas i just feel in america there are more interaction points because the parents once the nanny leaves the parents are there constantly so yeah no absolutely i've adapted i but i still keep reminding my my kids this is not how it was by the way i just have to do it and and then they laugh and they're like mom come on and i think it'll like as they become older and teenagers i think they'll take it with a grain of salt my parenting skills but i i definitely i i read up on all the parenting tips and you know i learn i adapt i change things that are so ingrained into you because that was a that was the way it was in india and i think in india it's changing because i talk to my friends in india and things have changed you know like with the whole globalization and you know it was just different times when i grew up so i would say yeah i mean i've changed things but the the heritage things or the things the values that we indians talk about i do bring it up once in a while and i needle my boys with it because i want them to be aware of it and the you know the whole respect factor like that comes through in all our classes like you know in hindi or in urdu there is a different way in which you create sentence structures because the respect goes into the way like you is up or tum or tu 
And there are three gradations of respect. So, you know, that I, I just feel it's very hard to remove yourself from that. And my kids are fully aware and they now make jokes, but they listen. <laughs> but I think it's, it's just making sure you're not beating them up with it. You're just introducing it and they, they basically take what they, they feel they're comfortable taking. I know we're coming up on time. I do have one more question. I've talked about parenting quite a bit. And so I think one previous episode, I kind of touched on this, but another big part of being South Asian is the fact that you have to take care of your parents or there's this sentiment at the, at the very least that you should be taking care of your parents. And in your case, your parents are across an ocean, I believe, or are they, are they, in they the moved? US? Yeah. Okay. They, okay. My parents moved to the, to the U S when their first grandkid was born, okay. they were like, okay, now we're not going back. Yeah. So how do you think about that dynamic in terms of what you owe to your parents? You know, especially as an immigrant coming over here, I'm sure you felt some relief when they also moved here. But just curious about your general thoughts there. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. In any, I think in any traditional culture or Eastern culture, parents are supposed to live with you after a certain point. And I think it does come in and out. Uh, my father unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but my mother, she she lives in Maryland, very close to where my sisters live, but she lives on her own. And as I had mentioned earlier, you know, she's a very strong, opinionated, independent woman. And so are her daughters. So coexisting is very hard. But then the norms are that, you know, you you take care of that's the rite of passage. That is the way the culture and the society functions back in India or used to function back in India. But the the whole Western individualistic having your own uh, little houses. And so we have adapted to that. My, my mother is not living with uh, any of us. She's living on her own. But that does come into conversation quite a bit. Like my father-in-law, he's living in India and through the pandemic, he has lived in Delhi all by himself. And he is literally going crazy because of the isolation. And he basically is like, I'm going to come to US and I'm going to live with you guys in your apartment. And, you know, that is the way it is. So, yeah, there is, I have to say, Suraj, there is a lot of guilt there is a lot of, you know, back and forth mentally that happens with that because that's what we grew up with. But we are just letting it go right now. But I think at some point, our mom is going to, like, as she grows older, she has to live with her kids. And I don't know how much of, uh, like, right now she lives in a senior citizen's community, which is very luxurious, and she swims and she loves it. But, you know, having assisted living or having your parents in a nursing home, you know, that is not comfortable. That's not a comfortable conversation for South Asians. Yeah. And I think they'll have to face it at some point. I think it places a, we're placed in an interesting situation because it's almost like having been raised in both cultures, we have either option, right? Whereas if you're Indian, like you just know your parent is living with you. If you're American, you just know that your parent is going to some sort of nursing home. Exactly, exactly. You know, when I was in business school, a classmate of mine who's American, we used to 
live in an apartment. And uh, during graduation, when my parents visited, I was like, no, no, my parents have to live in, in here, in the apartment with us, and they'll take my room. And her parents stayed in a hotel. So there, I was like, no, it's not even a conversation starter. Like if I tell them to go in a ho- live in a hotel, they will basically cancel. so yeah Anu before we go just final question where can people find you and the culture tree and follow along with what y'all are doing absolutely if you're in the tri-state area of New York New Jersey Connecticut you can actually find us at museums and libraries and some schools we do have a center on Upper West Side in Manhattan where we do language classes on the weekends and online, you can find us on theculturetree.com. On Insta, we are The Culture Tree. And on Facebook, we are The Culture Tree NY. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. Like I said, I'm moving to New York soon. I'm so excited to get involved and, and meet yeah. you in person and all that. Can't wait to see you in person, Suraj. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.